Welcome to Access Utah. I am Sherry Quinn. Men want commitment when women are scarce, according to University of Utah anthropologist Ryan Schott. The sexual stereotype is women want commitment and men want that sometimes, but more. Schott's study of the Makushi in Guyana with co-author Monique Boderhoff-Mulder shows it is much more complex. They found men are more likely to seek long-term relationships when women are in short supply. Ryan Schott is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Utah in the Department of Anthropology. He joins us to discuss his recent work. First, he describes his unique upbringing. Through my upbringing, you know, anthropology was the inevitable outcome. I uh, am the son of an academic. My father's a, a grassland ecologist, and we moved quite a bit. We lived in Utah, Texas, Nebraska, and also in Brazil, and in a little country uh, in southern Africa called Lesotho. And so I think these early child experiences of moving around, you know, just, just being surrounded by different cultures um, at you know, various different stages throughout my life really just made me interested in, in understanding the human condition, trying to um, understand and explain and even just catalog uh, the diversity in, in behavior and, and cross-cultural variability we see uh, in people. How did living in Africa as a child influence you later on in life and in your career? The long story is my parents both met in the Peace Corps. Uh, they were in the Central African Republic, and so always had a strong desire to return back to Africa. And so when I was about five, we moved to a small country um, called, called Lesotho. It's actually within uh, South Africa. It's uh, nearby Swaziland. People are generally more familiar um, with that. And so this was, I mean, just one of the, oh, I suppose, just most important experiences of my life, particularly because I lived... Um, in Lesotho during apartheid in South Africa. And so this was a time when, you know, as an American family, um, we were exposed to black and white only restaurants and restrooms and um, other types of establishments. And so this was something with, of course, you know, parents from the Peace Corps and also being, um, you know, American, this was something that we we often talked about um, and, and the problems that we had with this. And I think, you know, this this really influenced me at a young age just to see how different people were, how different people, uh, how different they, they lived, um, how, how different people's ideologies were, um, and just how, how place, you know, the, the context served just such an important role in, in patterning behavior, the way people think, the way they look, all of those types of things. Living around a lot and being exposed to all these different cultures must have provided a lot of challenges, and did it also influence your perspective in the U.S. and when studying behavior? Yeah, no, definitely. I think this was, you know, one of those things that just, just happens unconsciously. You don't really think about it, um, but later on, as you're looking back and seeing the way you live your life or what you find interesting, you realize that you're, you're intimately shaped by where you come from. And for me, I come from a lot of different places. And so what this meant, <laughs> you know, was that I was a really awkward kid and teenager in some ways when I finally moved back to the U.S. I, I hadn't you know, lived in the U.S. Uh, until I was about nine. Um, and so I was this kid who lived in Brazil and, and Lesotho and was just out of step. <laughs> I didn't know what was cool, what was popular, you know, the types of music or how to dress. And, you know, this took a long time. It took me a long time to get comfortable uh, to start making friends, to do these types of things. And again, you know, just looking back now as an anthropologist, you know, as someone who studies behavior, is, is realizing that, you know, I was living in these areas, learning how people, you know, lived in those areas, behaving like people did in those areas, and then going to a completely different area and finding that I was ill-equipped <laughs> to, uh, you know, to make friends and, and those types of things. And so, no, there was, you know, definite hardship, but at the same time, it was, you know, a, uh, an enriching experience moving, uh, moving so often um, and definitely, you know, leading to what I was interested in. So, I uh, went to Guyana, it's a small country in, in South America, it has about three quarters of a million people, um, but it's about the size uh, of, of Idaho. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a relatively large uh, country in, 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 the, uh, you know, the, in South America, but um, very low population density. And most, uh, about 90% of the population lives within about uh, 10 kilometers, so seven miles or so from, from the coast. And what this means is that the interior is, is largely uninhabited. Um, there's a few pockets of, of uh, you know, where you have regional capitals and, and city or smaller, smaller villages. But 
it's an area that's that's largely uninhabited. You know, close to about eighty percent of the rainforest is still primary, and so so just visiting there was just such an amazing experience. Um, and also, you can just see the history of colonization of colonialism just written both you know on the buildings, but on the faces of the people that you meet. It was initially a Dutch colony then British, then French, then it sort of exchanged back and forth depending on the war that was happening in the oh, uh, 16th, 17th, and 18th century um, centuries and eventually became um, and stayed a British, a British colony. And so you have um, uh, Afro-Guyanese who were brought over in the 16th, 17th century and up, up until the 18th, obviously, um, as, as slaves. And then after emancipation, uh, England looked to its, or Great Britain looked to its, um, another colony it had the, uh, the, in, in India and began in, importing indentured servants from, from India and brought over uh, people from both what are known as India and Pakistan today. And so you also now have a mix of religions. So you have a mix of ethnicities, you have a mix of religions. Um, and it was just such a fascinating place to visit that I just realized this is where I, I have to do my research. Can you discuss your current study and how it differs from mainstream ones? Well, and this was, I suppose, challenging some sexual stereotypes, firmly held sexual stereotypes about the nature of men and women or male and female and expectations about, about behavior. A lot of work um, that comes out of the social sciences, uh, psychology in particular, focuses on um, the college undergraduate. So we know a lot of information, quite detailed information about young men and women, 18 to 22, um, you know, of a particular sort of middle to upper middle class uh, background who are predominantly white. Um, so we know a lot about them, but we know very little about the rest of the world. Um, and yet, most of the generalizations about human universals, about what men and women do or how we expect them to behave, those types of things, come from these 18 to 22-year-olds uh, from, from U.S. universities. And so anthropologists are really interested in, in challenging some of these generalizations about human universals and instead exploring what we see cross-culturally, the variability we see in behavior, and trying to offer explanations for this, this contextual variation. And so, in particular with this study, what we were attempting to challenge was this notion that, well, that's held you know, popularly, that men are more interested in short-term, uncommitted relationships, uh, they're much more interested in being promiscuous than are women, and women really prefer long-term, committed relationships and are, are uh, generally more choosy. And this, this is also supported by uh, biological thought and that women um, invest more in reproduction than do men through gestation, lactation, those types of things. And so it really pays for them to be choosy because if they're not, there are, there are costs to choosing poorly, for example. Whereas men, um, you know, the costs to reproduction are quite low, right? So we could talk about a, a brief uh, a sexual encounter, a bit of sperm, for example, but there's potentially no long-term costs. And so these were the general arguments that there are these, 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 these roots, these biological roots are, that, are, that are driving our behavior and that men um, behave this way and women behave this way. And so that, of course, being an anthropologist um, was something that, that didn't represent what, what I and, and others see cross-culturally. And that, yeah, we do see some societies uh, that are quite in line with these, these simple biological predictions or our popular you know, uh, thoughts of, of what are men and women, and that men have multiple wives, for example. But then you have other cultures that are on the other side, where you have men or women with multiple husbands. And so this doesn't fit well with these simple explanations. And then, of course, you have a lot of cultures where it's right in the middle. You see monogamous, faithful, long-term, committed relationships where both men and women invest in shared offspring. And so... Um, what we were interested in doing was um, challenging some of these sexual stereotypes uh, and taking a mating market approach. And so a mating market approach is thinking about um, behavior being responsive to partner availability. So thinking about the number of men and women in a community or in a population in market terms where economic principles of, of supply and demand hold sway. So if you're rare, you can be more demanding of a partner, you can, you can leverage your rarity, and the sex that's in in abundance, uh, must respond to the sex that's rare. So we just counted people, literally just counted people. And so um, when, when there were fewer men than women, this is when you have a, a male biased community, meaning that there are just more men absolutely than there are women. Um, and when you have more women, this is when you're talking about a female biased community. So, so men are rarer than are women. How long did it take and how well were you received by these villagers? 
So this was done over uh, 16 months in the interior of Guyana, um, a little uh, place called the Rupununi. It's Rupununi savannas, which are an extension of the Rio Branco savannas from, from Brazil. And we were working with the indigenous group called the Makushi. Um, and the Makushi were great to work with for this. Uh, well, one, because they speak English. <laughs> so it was, it was you know, a great place to get in and, and be able to start, start research quite quickly, although I had been there uh, seven previous times. I've been going to the area since 2006. Um, but this is also an area where due to relatively recent market integration, um, you're seeing a lot of bias in um, um, uh, migration in and out of communities by sex. So in some areas that are closer to Brazil, you generally see more women leaving communities. Women are moving over into Brazil for things like shop work and domestic work. And then areas that are more in the interior, what you're seeing is that men are more likely to leave communities, for example, um, for timber work, mineral extraction, those types of things, ranching. But it's generally only temporary, um, so, so men aren't leaving permanently. But what you get is this nice gradient of variation in sex ratios within a single cultural group, within a single ethnic group. Um, and so we had some communities, for example, where there were 90 men for every 100 women. Um, all the way to communities where there were about 140 men for every 100 women. So they really ranged from being, you know, from having too many women, for example, to other communities having too many men. What were the population sizes and how much did they vary? They ranged quite a bit. On av- you know, the, our average size was about 350, um, but the smallest village was 160 people and the largest was just over 700. How did you collect information and how well were you received when conducting the interviews? So what we did in each of these communities was we needed an accurate census. And so I was working with my, uh, with my wife, and so we would go house to house <laughs> and just conduct this, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the old-fashioned way where, you know, we, we uh, didn't have, you know, the luxury of bringing people into the lab, for example. It was going, going out, counting people, um, and then administering um, the surveys, the questions that we had. And so, because we were asking questions about sex and sexuality and, and relationship preferences, um, I interviewed men, and my wife uh, interviewed uh, women. And in that way, we were trying to ensure that, you know, people felt comfortable um, talking with us about their, their relationship preferences. Did the difference in the male-female ratio depend on job opportunities and resource availability? In some areas, you just, there were more economic opportunities for women and so um, it really, or, or, you know, for men. And so in some areas, depending on their location, you would see more men drawn out of a community. And in other areas, you'd have more women drawn uh, out of a community. And so what that resulted in was, you know, because of wage labor opportunities that um, in some cases you had too many men, and in other cases you had too many women. How surprised were you by the results? Right, yeah. No, it was um, in some ways quite striking, especially once we... Um, you know, looked at, looked at the results was that in communities with more women, we, uh, you know, I mean, just to put it plainly, men were the cads we expect them to be. They were interested in short-term, uncommitted um, relationships. They were interested in having multiple partners, and their uh, relationship preferences were very different from women. Women were much more interested in short-term, or in long-term committed relationships. So the, the typical, you know, uh, story but as the sex ratio became more and more male biased, as the, the number of men to women increased, as you started having more and more extra men, men's preferences changed dramatically. Until we got to the, the communities with the most men, what we saw was that men's preferences were indistinguishable from women, so from women's preferences. So men wanted long-term committed uh, relationships with a single partner when women were rare. And so in these communities with more men, talking about sex or gender, was no longer a a useful way for making predictions about behavior. How would you translate them to American society or Western societies? If we're thinking about the West or, you know, moving from a small-scale society, because they're they're, um, an agricultural group, they they focus mostly on cassava or or also it's known as as manioc, but they do a fair amount of hunting and fishing as well. But if we want to think for moving from a small-scale society to industrialized societies or even more specifically a Western society like, like the U.S., we could think about um, or actually look to what we see are very biased sex ratios across the U.S. So there's a big urban-rural divide. So urban areas generally have more women than men. 
um, and rural areas generally have more men than women. And this is because women are more likely to leave rural areas and men are more likely to move into them. There's generally more agricultural work or mining or mineral extraction, those types of things. Um, and there is a big east-west divide. So if we look to the eastern states, and in particular the southern states, there are more women. And if we look to the west, these are areas where men are moving to. Um, so if we look to places like Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, Alaska, California, these are states uh, that generally have more men uh, than do women. And so I would say that you know, this, this, this argument, or our findings, uh, would apply to the U.S. as well. And there has been a little bit of work that's looked to um, uh, relationship outcomes as a consequence of the sex ratio and consistently found that when there are more men, this is when we see higher rates of marriage, uh, more stable relationships over time, more children or higher, higher rates of children born in wedlock, and higher rates of, uh, or, or sorry, lower rates of female-headed households. And so all these measures of, of family stability and uh, relationship commitment by men are higher when there are more men. How do you use these findings, your, these ideas, to predict individual behavior? I guess what I would say is, or at least if I were to take, use this theory and, and speak based on what the predictions are from taking a mating market approach or using mating market theory, is that the preferences and then the responses of an individual are going to be based on um, the, the, the number of uh, partners. Uh, so if, as a woman, a woman can potentially be much choosier about a relationship, can be more demanding about a partner if partners are abundant. Because if men weren't to respond to uh, the demands of a woman, then there's plenty, you know, uh, plenty other fish in the sea, so to speak. However, when uh, men are rare, um, this is now when men can leverage their scarcity and they can have uh, multiple partners uh, because of the extra women that are available. And one example of that is in New York City. Well, so there was a recent article out that just, uh, or popular write-up of, of this paper that, that Monique and I uh, had out in the Royal Society, which was at Exo Jane. Um, and it was written by Marcy Robin. And it was just a great, you know, it's just a fun little piece, but where she was applying what she read in our paper to um, what it's like living in New York as a woman. And, you know, making the argument that so much makes sense now <laughs> about how it's difficult to... And, of course, there are many things that matter. And no, and, and Monique and I are never once trying to say that it's all about sex ratio. You know, of course, a lot of things matter. But uh, what, what Marcy was pointing out was, you know, through, through her experiences in New York, is that it's very difficult to find a committed uh, partner or a man who's interested in a long-term commitment. And instead she finds herself in, in these sort of love triangles where either she's the partner of a man who is stepping out on her or she is that woman who is stepping out with that man on his other partner. And a lot of this just happens incidentally because uh, she's not sure what, what, men, what men are doing. And she uh, talks about a friend in Alaska who is a, a woman who is telling her to move to Alaska. You will really enjoy it. The dating, uh, the dating market is great here. And part of that argument is in line, or part of what they are experiencing is in line with these mating market predictions that in New York, there's a lot of extra women. Um, and in, in Alaska, there's a lot of extra men. Um, and so the number of men and women influences both men's and women's relationship preferences or what they're willing uh, to, to forego or what they're going to be demanding about um, in, in a partner. And, you know, men often complain or you hear about those things that it's, you know, why don't they ever go for the good guys or, you know, those types of things. And, you know, it'd be interesting to look at some of these complaints and how they're patterned by partner availability. <laughs> As predicted, they found men were very sensitive to the sex ratio. The women, however, surprised them. So when women were rare, this is when men were ready to commit. They wanted long-term committed relationships. And, you know, this was quite counter to a very simple, you know, a simple biological, you know, expectation of behavior. But what did surprise us was that women um, didn't seem to be responsive to the sex ratio. And so in some ways we expected women to, you know, either be more interested in having multiple partners when men were abundant. So in a way, uh, be more interested in, in dissolving a relationship um, if a man wasn't investing in going for another, 
or potentially responding to the rarity or, or uh, shortage of men by being willing to take or, or, or to have multiple partners. But we didn't find that. Um, and, and so, it, you know, initially it was quite surprising, but I think there are really two explanations to this. And one is that the family, and I suppose, you know, to have a successful household, it's very important to get investment from both a mother and a father. And this is because women generally do most of the food production and processing, so it's mostly, you know, meeting the, the, the needs of the family on a day-to-day basis, whereas the men will do uh, more of the protein collecting, so they'll do more hunting and fishing. So, so in some ways, women may be attempting to signal their, their faithfulness or their, their, their fidelity uh, to a partner by not taking multiple partners in order to secure an investing, an investing partner. But, you know, secondly for me is that women, or at least, sorry, not for me, but for the Makushi, is that women um, have a lot of power within, within the household. They have power in terms of economic decision-making, household decision-making, those types of things. And that's because the Makushi are are matrilineal and matrilocal, meaning that kinship is reckoned through uh, the female line. And at marriage, a groom moves in with the bride's family. And so what it is, it's a group of related women, grandma, mom, aunts, nieces, cousins, who are working together to meet the family's calorie needs, you know, to meet their subsistence needs. And men are marrying into these, into these families. And so what you see is that the, the network and the relationships between women are very important. And so if a woman were to take multiple partners, there's the potential that she would be sleeping with family members or a friend's uh, husband. And so this would potentially jeopardize her uh, social network and her ability to meet household uh, production, production needs. How much did age factor into it and, and make a difference? No, it really didn't. I mean, that's something that we were, we were surprised about. I mean, what we did find is that, on average, single men had, uh, were more interested in, in, law, in short-term relationships than were married men. And so, so just in general, we, there's a sort of protective effect of, of marriage. If you're married as a man, you are, you are generally uh, more committed to a long-term, long-term relationship. But interestingly, married men in communities with more women were much more like single men in communities with more men. So in the end, it, was, it wasn't just about relationship status. It was really about uh, partner availability. So when men had or were in communities with more women, this is when they were more interested in short-term, uncommitted relationships. Can you discuss the, the Aceh hunter-gatherer community that lived tr- traditionally in the jungle? Anthropologists say some groups had polyandrous tendencies where women could have multiple partners. Yeah, with the Aceh, I think that there are um, you know, really two, two communities that have been studied or two areas. And one is more reliant or centered around a mission. Um, and the other is not. And so, yeah, and the other, so the, the one that's living more traditionally, I guess, yeah, you could say is, a, is definitely a, a harsher environment. You know, what we wanted to do by, you know, one, working with a single ethnic group was to try to hold for a lot of these, the, this variation that, that, that could be influencing behavior, you know. But one of those things, like you were saying, is, you know, market integration. So we haven't looked at this um, at least for the preferences of men and women in terms of their relationships. But what we did for a separate study when we were looking at men's and women's preferences um, in terms of, uh, you know, what are the types of traits that you look for in a partner? You know, is, phys- is, it, is it important that he or she is physically attractive or that they make money or that they're hardworking or trustworthy, these sort of typical traits in, in all of these studies of mate choice? What we found is that market integration or, or reliance on wage labor did matter. Um, but that we didn't see a strong sex effect that, that uh, men and women wanted different things. It was that in communities that people made less money from wage labor, were less tied into the, the national the global market. These were people who were more reliant on or preferred strong family ties. And so here's you know, these areas where you don't have money to help uh, get you through lean times. And instead what you have are family members that you can turn to or friends or in-laws that you can turn to when resources are tight or short. You know, market integration, of course, plays a role into that. You know, when you have people who are less reliant on what they grow or what they hunt and they fish, so there's a lot more stochasticity, right? So you could, uh, you know, one month do very well, the next month do quite poorly. And so you need expansive social networks to try to 
get you through those lean times. But if you're more reliant on a relatively stable income, then you don't need as wide of a social network, um, at least to, to meet you know, your, your household needs. And then, of course, you know, in larger communities, you're just more likely to interact with strangers, um, um, and uh, you can be more anonymous, I suppose, on a, on a daily basis than when you're in a small community. Why the focus in surveys on 18 to 22-year-olds, and how does that change across cultures? The general focus... Um, on the 18 to 22 year olds is, you know, about, about relationship preferences and asking them in the context of, of a sort of anonymous individual or a hypothetical situation or presenting them with a face and asking people about, you know, what are your short-term versus long-term preferences? Would you, do you like, or would you, uh, are you comfortable with, with one-night stands? Uh, these types of things. And, you know, we're asking people about relationship preferences where, you know, as a, as a college student, you're likely going to see a lot of faces every day. And a lot of those faces are people you may never see again. And so you're having people um, engaging in environments that are very different than where I worked in with the Makushi. Um, and I remember asking men this question and having a lot of men just look at me strangely when I asked them about how many one-night stands they've had, because this is uh, one of the, the questions about, you know, trying to get at the relationship preferences. And, you know, one man in particular looked at me and was just confused, and so I tried to explain it a couple different ways. Imagine that there is a, a village party and there are several villages participating, and there's someone, a uh, woman that you hadn't seen before, um, and you slept together, but you didn't see her again. And, you know, all of a sudden it dawned on him what I was saying, and he looked at me with, you know, this kind of mix of surprise and disgust and said, why would I ever sleep with someone once and only once? And, you know, it just really stood out to me that it, the motivations, you know, behind our relationships are so different in different places. And there is a very different motivation down there for relationships. Men and women want to get married. Marriage is an important stepping stone in, in terms of becoming an adult and getting the rights and responsibilities associated with, with being adult. So it's important for both men and women to get married because if men don't get married, then they don't have the respect at the community level or within the sphere of, of other men in the community because they're not, a, they're, they're not a husband, they're not going to be a father potentially. So these are things that are really driving our relationship preferences. Whereas, you know, if we're talking about 18 to 22 year olds, I mean, this is we are all, you know, or those of us who've been to college or, or who know sort of the more popular expectations, this is a time of exploration, you know, both of exploration academically, but also in some ways, you know, sexually or in terms of relationships. And so, so we shouldn't expect relationship preferences to be the same everywhere. Um, and so, so for me, that just really stood out. It's like, wow, you know, I mean, you know, this is just, you know, as an anthropologist, it even was a wow moment for me. It was like context and culture matter so much to these types of things. And so it just really, for me, just further challenges a lot of these generalizations that come out of, uh, about human universals that come out of studies from Western populations, in particular from college kids. So we know a lot about 18 to 22-year-olds, but we don't know anything about people in their 30s and 40s in the U.S. You know, what's driving their relationship preferences? Your study then challenges their traditional way of looking at these behaviors and, and how they're studied. How do you find sex ratios affect other behaviors and aspects in society? Yeah, so this study has, I think, in many ways just opened up a lot of possibilities in terms of uh, research. I recently presented a paper, um, and again, this was with, with Monique borgerhoff Mulder, who's the co-author, and also Kristen Rauch, who is uh, a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral researcher at, at UC Davis um, in, in the anthropology department, where we were applying these mating market ideas to trying to understand violence, and, and in particular, understanding patterning of violence against women. Um, and so what we're consistently seeing in, in a review of the literature, looking at, at everything that's been published, is that when there are more men in communities or in populations, we generally see, like I was saying earlier, um, more stable relationships over time, greater male investment in children, all of these types of things, which are counter to a lot of our popular concerns about more men leading to more social instability and things. And so we wanted to explore violence uh, more, more closely. And so what we did was look to, uh, in particular, uh, sexual assault against women, so looking to rape. And we were also looking at, at male-male homicide. And what we found in both cases, for both of those, both of those uh, crimes, that when there were more men in a community, that 
rates of, of rape and rates of homicide were lower. And rates of rape and homicide were actually highest when there were more women. And so this is the direction currently we're going in, is, is to see how these mating market approaches, you know, apply to the West, apply to, to the U.S., and to, to some of these really big questions about sexual assault, um, about homicide, about understanding violence, and, and hoping they can shed some light. And of course, it's one of many things that matter. Um, but we are getting some purchase here, and that um, it, there does seem to be some, some, some patterning that we are picking up, and so we're, we're looking into that in, in more detail at the moment. Are there more studies looking at other age ranges beyond 18 to 22, and especially since there's such a gap in that knowledge? No, no, to be honest. I mean, I probably could find, there, there have been some that I haven't followed closely, but some internet internet studies where they will uh, try, to, try to target a larger age range. Um, but there's been very little work on this done in, done in the West. If you want to get uh, any understanding of what people outside of the age ranges of 18 to 22 are doing, you have to look to generally um, non-Western studies. So anthropologists, anthropologists are generally the ones who are interested in looking at people across, um, you know, across the adult lifespan. All the other complex behaviors that go along with different age groups and ethnicities, and why is that being overlooked in general? And uh, are your studies challenging a lot of those universals? I'm going to be very critical here, but I also, before I say that, just want to say that I, I don't mean to be overly critical of psychology or of evolutionary psychology in particular. I think that, you know, their focus on 18 to 22-year-olds is really because it's, you know, th these are people that you can quickly get access to. So anthropologists, we, you know, so I had to spend 16 months in the field. You know, I spent several years before that getting the grant proposal completed, getting funding, you know, getting research approvals, you know, doing the research. So if everything were at that level, you know, it could take us quite a long time to learn a lot, you know, to learn about the human condition. And so psychologists have a quicker turnover, right? So they can bring in these 18 to 22 year old college students who are in their courses. Um, and so they can collect a lot of data quickly. And I suppose our response as anthropologists is just to, to proceed with caution and that recognize that this is a useful group and, and it should be used. We should try to learn what we can from them, but also to be quite cautious about making any generalizations about human universals and realizing that this is just one population of many, one population of one, generally from one economic group, from one ethnic group, <laughs> one from one age group. And we should be very uh, cautious about arguments about it being representative of the human condition. That was anthropologist Ryan Schott. Thanks for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University. Public outreach information on our Facebook page, Cache Valley Science Kids. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. This week on This American Life, I don't know if this is bad to say, but I was never really into the writer William Burroughs. And then I heard this radio story that totally turned me around on him, made him seem really interesting, partly because uh, the story was not so reverential. I find the whole Burroughs myth pretty repulsive, actually. For Burroughs' 101st birthday, that story, this week. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. I'm uh, Mark Mazzetti. I'm uh, currently in Washington, D.C., and I work for the New York Times. Mark Mazzetti is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. In 2003, Mazzetti spent two months reporting in Baghdad while traveling with the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force. In 2007, 
He broke the story of the CIA's destruction of interrogation videotapes depicting torture of al-Qaeda detainees. The story launched a Justice Department investigation, and he won the Livingston Prize for national reporting for his work on this story. He joins us today to talk about his work in his new book, titled The Way of the Knife, The CIA, A Secret Army, and A War at the Ends of the Earth. It is an account of the transformation of the CIA and America's special operations forces into manhunting and killing machines in the world's dark spaces, what he calls the new American way of war. Congratulations on your, your new book. Oh, thanks very mm-hmm. much. Appreciate it. Could you talk about your, your background and how you got to cover national security and the CIA? I moved to Washington in 2001 and was working for U.S. News and World Report magazine and um, covering general assignment stories and uh, some some politics in Congress. And in the spring of 2001, my editor approached me and asked if I wanted to cover the Pentagon. And um, I had no background in, in the military, national defense, national security issues whatsoever. And this was April of 2001. And he said, well, there's really nothing happening anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> and then six months later, uh, September 11th happened, and um, I kind of felt like I was thrown into the fire in these issues, but um, and and then have just been covering them ever since from several different angles, from the military side, from the intelligence side, and, and just became very interested in all of these um, kind of wars that have been happening over the years um, outside of declared war zones, the, outside of places like Iraq and Afghanistan. How do you cover a, such a secretive organization? How do you get people to talk? <laughs> um, well, it does take a uh, it takes a while. I mean, the, um, the when you cover the military, it's um, it, it's in many ways easier. Uh, things that they do for the most part are, um, are are not classified. You can go to Iraq and Afghanistan. You can be an embedded porter with a reporter with troops. You can um, walk around the Pentagon. Um, people will talk to you. Uh, when you cover intelligence, um, there are far fewer opportunities to go see things. People, uh, you can't walk around the CIA. You can't walk around other intelligence agencies and just run into people and talk to them. Um, you have to rely on different uh, other, different ways. You can talk to retired officers who keep tabs on what's happening inside various intelligence agencies. You can talk to foreign officials who have a sense of what's happening uh, with American intelligence. Um, you know, you can talk to other parts of the government that have windows into this. It, it's, it's a slower process. It's a, in many ways, less efficient process. Uh, but in, it's rewarding because you feel that you are um, you're digging into things that, um, that in, in many cases, are, are, are the public has an interest to know about. Can you talk about the, the history of the CIA, or the, the philosophy, really what, what you've, you've learned in, your, in the course of your reporting and writing the book? What is the well, philosophy? Well, I mean, if you look at the CIA, um, as, as I said, a lot, so much of the history of the post-9-11 period has actually been outside of declared war zones. It's been outside of Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's really been the CIA that has been leading these efforts um, in these places like Pakistan and Yemen and parts of Africa. And um, so that really has changed the agency. Um, as I read about in the book, there's, uh, there's a lot of different periods of CIA history. There's the early period when the CIA was very operational uh, and, and was involved in a lot of um, coup attempts and attempts to assassinate various foreign leaders. And a lot of that was aired out in the mid-1970s, and the public got a sense of what the CIA had been doing during its early decades. Um, and then... Um, during that period, um, there was a retrenchment. The Church and Committee investigations of the mid-1970s um, reigned in the CIA. President Ford signed a ban um, in 1976 uh, banning assassinations. And in many ways, um, after that, the CIA created a whole generation of officers, what I call the post-church generation, um, who were basically taught that the CIA was a espionage service and intelligence-gathering service, not as um, a, a hunting and killing service. Um, and that really existed until 9-11, when right after 9-11, President Bush gave the CIA this new mandate, these new authorities to go around the world capturing or killing. And that really set the CIA on this path of what it is today, which is very much a paramilitary service, a manhunting service, and a counterterrorism service. And how successful do you think they are? Well, it's mixed. Um, if you look at, um, you know, by sheer 
um, you know, looking at the list of al-Qaeda leaders who have either been captured or killed, um, al-Qaeda as it existed on um, 9-11 is really a shadow of what it once was. Um, so they've become quite proficient in the business of hunting and killing and um, you know, killing off al-Qaeda leaders. Um, there is, There are, though, other questions about um, whether... Uh, you know the CIA is um, it, w- whether just by k- certainly killing killing leaders of Al Qaeda uh, they are they are not creating more militants. Um, also, Al Qaeda really has morphed um, to different kind of groups that are regional and no longer the hierarchical organization that it once was. And so, questions really is is how can you judge the success? Is it been successful in sort of dis- dismantling Al Qaeda? I think we're not quite sure yet. Um, the other issue that I think is important is what are opportunity costs of all of this counterterrorism and all of this manhunting? Um, certainly. Um, an agency uh, has, who, which has been told both by President Bush and President Obama that their number one mission is counterterrorism, is going to be paying less attention to other things, whether it's uh, Russia or China or other parts of Asia. Um, they have to make decisions about where they're going to put the resources and where they're going to put uh, their personnel. And so certainly they will have um, less understanding of, of, of those parts of the world than on the counterterrorism mission. I heard you mention... U.S. contractor Raymond Davis in your interview uh, on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And I was captivated with that story when I first read about it, um, probably in the New York Times. And I just instantly thought it had something to do (laughs) with the CIA or U.S. military. And though the article didn't mention it at first, I believe. What can you say about about that incident? And, you know, he shot people, a couple of people in the street. They said he was being chased down or robbed, I think. Yeah. And then I thought it was so... Interesting that he was, Hillary Clinton at the time, was able to get him out. It's one of the really most fascinating moments. I I spent a lot of time in the book looking at uh, Pakistan because it's really been kind of the laboratory for some of these um, uh, shadow wars. And and it wasn't until going to Pakistan when I was researching the book that I really hit home for me how important in Pakistan the Raymond Davis episode was. I think um, it's largely forgotten in the United States because a couple months later um, you had the Osama bin Laden raid in May 2011, and, and that's what people remember. They made a movie out of it, and um, it um, was considered sort of the culmination of, of, of 10 years um, since 9-11. But the Davis episode in many ways is much more fascinating. Um, what you had was um, a contractor driving through the streets of Lahore, Pakistan. And um, he, as you said, was approached by two men he thought were trying to rob him. And he uh, was posing as a diplomat, but <laughs> right after he, um, uh, he feels threatened, he shoots two of them from a gun he had in the car. And um, a third person dies after he radios for help from the U.S. consulate in Lahore, and that truck drives the wrong way down a one-way street, killing a third person. Raymond Davis ends up in jail in Lahore, and the U.S. basically says he's a diplomat, he's works for the State Department, uh, he is entitled to diplomatic immunity, you've got to let him go. The Pakistanis knew that he was not a diplomat, that he worked for the CIA, and that really caused this this standoff. And I think the significance of it was that, you know, the Pakistanis had suspicions about what was happening in their country, the fact that the CIA had this large secret group of people operating in the country, but they could never prove it. And Davis uh, was proof for them that this phenomenon was occurring. And so actually the opening scene of my book is uh, the interrogation of Raymond Davis, uh, who uh, you can actually well, you can actually see that interrogation on YouTube because someone was taking a cell phone video of it. What was he doing? It well, just what seems. What he was doing was he was gathering intelligence about a group in Lahore called Lashkari Taiba, which had been uh, for a long time and still to some extent does, operates in plain sight in Pakistan. Uh, They were sort of nurtured by Pakistani security services, but but then they uh, sort of spread out their mission. Um, They were involved in the Mumbai attacks of late 2008 and other attacks. And what the concern was at the CIA was that this group was getting closer and closer to al-Qaeda and that the U.S. really didn't know a whole lot about them, but they were based in Lahore, and so Raymond Davis and a group he was working with uh, were operating around Lahore in order to gather intelligence about uh, about Lashkari Taiba. Would Would you say that that was a really big mistake with Raymond Davis? I mean, and 
would that be something that the CIA would just be like a big no-no? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to, um, uh, you know, know the exact circumstances of what he felt at the time, obviously. Uh, I mean, a lot of people were critical that someone would, um, you know, take this action and just sort of shoot two people on sight um, when they're supposed to be undercover. As you say, you know, generally, if you're undercover, you want to stay undercover and you want to get out of a situation as quickly as possible. And um, so once he was arrested, it was pretty hard to mask the fact that he was working for the CIA. This was not no ordinary diplomat. So it was, um, yeah, he did run into a lot of criticism from old CIA veterans who were really criticizing also this contracting that the CIA had done, this outsourcing to contractors, and um, that these people didn't really have the temperament to operate in the Middle East. Why is the U.S. so interested in this region of the world I mean, obviously, we hear so much about oil based on your research. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 in many ways, it, I mean, the, the U.S. has been involved in the Middle East for, for some time. But, but, I mean, 9-11 was, was this defining moment that set all of this in motion. I mean, you had the Bush administration that was determined to, um, to, to find those responsible for 9-11. You had the invasion of Afghanistan, and you had this war around the earth, and um, in not just the Middle East, but in Africa as well. And so it really set off this global war. Um, What you're now seeing is President Obama um, at least publicly says he wants to end some of this, um, to not have perpetual war. But I think some of this, as I wrote in the New York Times over the weekend, that this is this will continue for some time, and I think the CIA will continue doing it for some time. Any thoughts on the NSA? The use? Yeah, of- I um I have um, not been out there, but I've, I've seen pictures and I've <laughs> I've read about it, and I mean it just is um, I think illuminates the extent that the NSA is trying to. Um, gather and store as much content as possible about communications. And so this, as far as I can tell, this facility in Utah is a, um, a a gigantic storage and sifting facility and that they've run out of room in other places so they have to build this um, this facility and I think it's it's a, it's a, it's a sign that not only of the growth of NSA over the last decade but the expectation of how much they're going to grow in the future. It seems to have offended, you know, a lot of politicians and leaders around the world, at least from some media reports. Well, they've certainly been listening to um, a fair number of leaders, and um, the uh, the the uh, and and that and that certainly gets um, when those you know since the Edward Snowden revelations uh, last summer, that certainly uh, created some very dicey diplomacy, especially with allies like Germany. Okay, and, and since you have to go here in a couple minutes, uh, I I wanted to ask you about the drones and uh, are robots becoming our new proxies? Well, I mean, the robots are, um, you know, drones are still piloted by people, and it's people that are making the decisions. Um, so um, I think for the time being, we're not at the point of fully automated warfare where robots have taken over. I do think that, I mean, what, what drones present is this idea that you can go into locations hover, stay there for long periods of time and not risk troops or not risk pilots. Um, so they, they do have this seductive quality, but we're not in the, I don't think we're in the age of pure robot warfare yet. How actually do you become a CIA officer or contractor? You, you can apply. You can apply. Uh, you can go to their website and fill out an application, and then there's a, a, a pretty extensive um, uh, 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 procedure and you can decide whether you want to be an operations person or an analyst, but they still get a lot of applications, and I think that their selection uh, system is pretty rigorous. <laughs> I, am, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we're out of time, unfortunately, but is there anything else you, um, important you want to mention about the book or your, your future work? No, thank you for having me on, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk about these issues. The book is now out in paperback, so I hope people like it. Congratulations Thanks. again on the book. Much, Jerry. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Mark Mazzetti, author of The Way of the Knife, The CIA, A Secret Army, and A War at the Ends of the Earth. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. 
offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about Welsh immigrants who brought with them valuable skills that laid the foundation for Utah's early mining industry. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian Exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Like other countries in Europe during the 19th century, Wales felt the effects of the Industrial Revolution. Rapid increases in population and harsh working conditions in manufacturing and coal mining led to worker riots and clashes with factory and mine owners. The first Mormon missionaries arrived in Wales in 1840 and had great success in cities dealing with poverty and social conflict. But for many of the Welsh converts, the promise of a new life in America was not always realized. Once settled in Utah, these Welsh immigrants sought to improve their circumstances, yet found their old lives were hard to leave behind. Their specialized coal mining skills were naturally sought after by Mormon leaders setting up industries in an effort to create a self-sufficient economy. In 1854, two Welsh miners, John Price and John Reese, were assigned to tap a source of coal located at the foot of the Sandpitch Mountains in central Utah. Nearby the new mine, they established a town called Coalbed, which they later renamed Wales in honor of their homeland. The community was populated solely by immigrants from the British Isles, a little bit of home transplanted to Utah. When a disastrous accident in the Cummer Mine back in Wales claimed 114 lives in 1856, the Welsh miners in Utah were no doubt reminded that the harsh and dangerous working conditions they had fled could someday become a reality in Utah. In peak years, the mines near the town of Wales employed 200 men before giving way to larger, more profitable mines in nearby Carbon County. Those, too, drew many Welshmen in their skills. In 1900, when Carbon County's Schofield mine disaster claimed more than 200 lives, many of them Welsh, those earlier fears of recreating dangerous working conditions were sorely realized. Like many immigrants, Welsh settlers in Utah duplicated to some degree the lives they had tried to leave behind. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Michelle Hill. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 